0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45
0: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hey, it's Matt here. Guess what's happening on this week's binge list? Oh, I couldn't believe someone that good looking would be a mass murderer. (laughs) I have mixed feelings about it. I think that it's quite exploitative.
2: I I just was annoyed by her after a few (laughs) few episodes. The stuff happening off
1: screen is kind
3: of a bit more interesting than
1: what is happening on screen, yeah. right?
2: I could get into it. I could really get into that show. So maybe maybe it's my new thing. Yeah,
1: yeah. And a show that sort of is steeped in progressive politics and the actors being so prominent in progressive politics has now been very stained by these allegations about some very unprogressive things allegedly happening on set. So much to explore, explore, explore. There's so much potential for new, but we're still wedded to the original series. still obsessing over Spock.
2: Well, I loved this episode. I loved just the fact that they changed the format, that they brought them back. I loved the drama.
3: The drama, the shade, Mm. the the, pouring tea, drinking tea. Spilling tea. Spilling Spilling tea. Spilling the tea. Wow. (laughs) How how out of touch am I?
1: It's a way of uh, sort of winking to the audience and saying, we know you're not stupid. You're along for the ride. We're going to give you a bloody good ride. And that's certainly what they're doing. back to Binge List, your weekly podcast covering all the best shows on TV. I'm your host, Matthew Denby, and joining me in the studio are Who Magazine's TV experts, Gavin Scott and Ali Cromedy. Welcome back, guys. Hi. Hey. First off, we're delving into the world of one of history's most appalling serial murderers with Netflix's new offering, Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy Tapes. It's available from January 24. That's 30 years to the day since he was executed. This series comprises a mixture of contemporary interviews with people involved in the Bundy case and archival footage, but the central feature here holding all of this together are death row audio recordings of Bundy himself, taped by two journalists who thought they could get an insight into why someone who seemed so respectable, could rape, kill, and mutilate numerous women. As you would expect, it's really chilling stuff. What did you think of it, Gavin?
3: I'll be honest, I wasn't the biggest fan of this one. I'm not a true crime fan at the best of times, but I found this one, I don't know, a little bit boring, I have to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, which which is mm-hmm. kind of weird to say about something like Ted Bundy, which is is, you know, the opposite of boring. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's morbid and, and it's eerily fascinating and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, there's a lot of interest to be had in looking back at the people describing him at the time, you know, oh, I couldn't believe someone that good-looking would be a mass murderer. Yeah. I mean, those kind of scenes are, are interesting. But, uh, you know, as you said, the, the central part of this doco are the tapes from Ted Bundy recorded while he was in jail. And I think it loses something by recording, re, by relying so heavily on audio. Uh, it kind of feels like maybe this should have been a podcast. Maybe it should have been an audio book. It, uh, it, it, you know, it doesn't really work for me as a TV series because it's so much audio that we're listening to just with these with this archival footage going in the background. Ali, you're nodding your head.
2: Yeah, I could not agree with you more on the podcast front. And I, it also just goes on and on and on and on. I just think they needed to make it tighter and it would have been better as a podcast too because they have the the audio. Like and all we get with watching the show is you hear that him talking and then you get these images that obviously relate to what he's saying, but it just loses its loses an, the impact that I think they're trying to deliver. Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. The, the thing that was most impactful was hearing Ted Bundy talking about oh. him doing it or he mm. doing it. Like He didn't say, oh, well, I did this and I yeah. did that. He kind of put himself into a third-person character mm. where he described, well, you know, he would follow her home and he mm. would do this and yeah. that was kind of, yeah, quite... That's
2: when it got interesting, I guess, But and that was brilliant... Um, idea on the behalf of the the journalists who were like, well, this is how we'll get him to talk about it is because he's a psych, he's got a degree in psychology or whatever. Um, that's how he can explain it. It was that was great, but
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they did say this was a really intelligent guy, and he mm. felt that he could manipulate the journalists, and they were well aware of that at the mm. time. And he basically, for for the first several days of recording, would just uh, present his celebrity biography, this sort mm. of narcissism about everything except uh, the case itself, about his background. At the time, he was claiming he was innocent, of mm. course. And then, yeah, as you say, yeah, they got around that by saying, uh, "What kind of person do you think?" Did this? Mm. Why would they do that? And that's when he got into the really meaty, interesting stuff about mm. his motivations. And there's some quite horrific information in there. Yeah. Him saying, you know, this character probably thought that uh, just this next murder victim would be the end of it. That it would, uh, you know, he, mm. he wouldn't want to do it after that. And mm. then you had all that sort of stuff about demonic possession and mm. evil voices urging him on and on. So yeah, there is some insight here, but I think amongst uh, the occasional insights, there's a lot of rehash. Yeah, I think. We We've all seen uh, Ted Bundy documentaries before. There's so many of them, and especially since the 30th anniversary coming up, there's been a lot of Ted Bundy content. So if you're familiar at all with this case, you will have uh, seen and heard a large chunk of this content, wouldn't you?
3: Yeah, it's so morbid in a way to... You know, quote unquote, celebrate. I mean, they're not really celebrating, yeah, but to, to mark right. the 30th yeah. anniversary is really kind of sick mm-hmm. in a way. But uh, I was reading a story from last year on online that said Ted Bundy's going to be everywhere coming yeah. up because of his anniversary. Everyone's kind of jumping on the bandwagon. And, and there has always been a bit of a cult of celebrity surrounding him because, you know, he is so notorious mm. for the 30 murders that he admitted to plus the others that he possibly did and and never admitted to. But uh, yeah, it it is kind of creepy. But uh, Mm. the the one thing it did remind me watching this was um, it reminded me that 30 years ago in our Christian studies class at school, we were played a Ted Bundy video. (laughs) Yeah, Not not the kind of (laughs) Ted Bundy video you might be thinking of, but it was an interview he did the day before he was executed Mm. with this uh, evangelical uh, preacher called uh, Dr. James Dawson, and it was called Fatal Addiction, this mm. interview, and then they sold the interview and, and raised money for the church and all that kind of thing. And in this interview, Ted Bundy basically blamed everything on this hardcore pornography addiction that that he claimed to have, even though previously he'd, he'd said he was motivated by something else. Sure. And anyway, so watching this documentary took me back 30 years to when in high school we were subjected to this bizarre interview by in a this,
2: Christian studies class, in a Christian studies class, with oh,
3: preacher and Ted Bundy and Ted Bundy saying, "Yeah, the pornography made me do it." So um, yeah, that was my takeaway mm. from this. Well,
2: yeah, it made me think of well, I know there's a movie coming out with Zach Efron starring as Ted Bundy, which interesting casting. I mean, he is a good looking guy. So, but I was watching the footage of Ted, thinking of Zach Efron playing it, and I'm like, wow, does, will, will he be able to? to do that. Um, mm. Is he too good looking? Anyway. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. But Matt, you're, I mean, you're probably out of the three of us, our true crime
3: fan. Yeah, he knows. Um, fan, yeah. So. Well,
1: yeah, I've watched a lot of it, not entirely out of choice, but yes. <laughs> right. So,
3: so, would you recommend this docu- docu-series?
1: I think if, if you've got any interest in this case, you're going to want to watch it, and I think it will be a big, big success for Netflix, mm. but uh, I would just reiterate, there's not a hell of a, not a lot here that's really truly new. Okay. I mean, there has been a book out before about these revelations. Um, most of the narrative has been run into the ground a million times. But yes, we are approaching the 30th anniversary, and I think that this stuff is just going to be everywhere. I have mixed feelings about it. I think that it's quite exploitative. I sort of think about the families of those 30 women who are mm, murdered mm, and think true. how they would be feeling right now about having their loved ones, uh, brutal murders sort of turned into entertainment, which is basically all this is. It's not really you know, any great insight or Educational value. Mm. Um, it's a spectacle. It's about. It's partly also about the media spectacle and the notion of uh, how people reacted to him as a suspect because he was not what people at the time or even now yeah. would consider to be a stereotypical serial killer. He was good looking. He was middle class. He was educated. educated yeah. He was successful. He was well groomed, which is one of the reasons he got so many of those women to you know approach his vehicle and help him out. No, mm. in public places, nobody thought twice. Nobody thought he was this sort of a potential killer, and everyone was wrong. So, yeah, Mm. I mean, it it is a fascinating subject and I'm sure that this is going to be a huge success. So, Mm. Conversations with a Killer, The Ted Bundy Tapes is available on Netflix from January 24. You're listening to Binge List. Edgy American comedy Smilf is back on stand right now with season two. This US series takes on motherhood and female sexuality in a very gritty Boston style and centres on the character of Brigitte, played by the show's creator, Frankie Shaw, as she tries to make her way surrounded by some pretty memorable... Characters, most of them very strongly written women. Ali, your thoughts?
2: So I loved the first season; Um, was a big fan. Uh, I thought it was great, and I was obsessed with Frankie Shaw and the creator and the star of it, the show. Um, But from watching the first few episodes of this season, I kind of it made me think I didn't. I forgot why I loved it because it just wasn't. I I I just was annoyed by her after a few episodes. Um and I just yeah, the show it sort of didn't really hit yeah hit the spot as it did the first season. So I don't know why. Um but Gavin I know you weren't the biggest fan, so you're probably really like yeah see I told you so yeah, <laughs> yeah
3: I wasn't um, the, the biggest fan I did try with season one I can't remember how many episodes I watched but I watched a couple and then yeah she just annoyed me I was just like I'll mm. get it together like, that's I, what
2: I, I, and that's what I was yelling at the screen this week like, yeah when I watched it like
3: yeah which I know is the point I know mm. I know this character is kind of her life's a bit of a mess mm. and you know and she's doing the best she can do as a single mom. is and, she well okay I was being, I I was being kind <laughs> there you know struggling through life yeah. but yeah I, I dipped out of season one but I mm. thought okay give, give season two a chance yeah. and the same old thing I was watching are going, oh, he's just so again. annoying. Here she is again. But I'll tell you who I do love mm. is Connie Britton.
2: I, and I was going to bring that up too. Yeah, I do. Co- love
3: Connie Britton. I mean, Connie Britton is brilliant in everything she does, mm. um, notably Friday Night Lights. But, mm. uh, but yeah. Everything. everything, everything is, is you know fifty percent better yeah, with, Connie, with Connie Britton in it, um, and she plays Bridget's uh, kind of self obsessed boss, boss yeah. Allie, who's just yeah she's a piece of work, but mm. she's great, and mm. and Connie does a really good job of that, mm. and Rosie O'Donnell mm. is really good in it as well. Mm. So I did like the scenes that they were in, but yeah, the, the Frankie Shaw scenes as, as Bridget, I didn't
1: love mm. Matt. Yeah, I agree with you. I thought Rosie O'Donnell was fantastic in this. The lack of vanity in her portrayal is just great i had to really reassess my thoughts about rosie because i wasn't the biggest fan but i thought she was so good she's the real actress in this so uh so committed to the role Mm. physically in terms of the character really 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 good the character of ali that was an interesting one now i'm not going to give away too many spoilers but there is an upcoming episode involving a birkin bag which i just felt completely repulsed watching Ali in her pursuit of this Birken bag and the way that she treated other people. Now, it wasn't, you know, she she is a bit of a caricature in some ways, but this wasn't done camply. It was sort of, it has a ring of truth about it, the, the certain character that they're portraying there mm. with Ali. Those the people exist. Yeah, the entitled, <laughs> the wealthy, treating treating little people like they're dirt. Mm. Um, I, I also felt there was something... Even though I didn't like her at all, I thought there was something a little mean-spirited in the way they portrayed her, like there's sort of a, a real spite in the writing. Mm. What did you think about that, Ali?
2: Um, yeah, that's an interesting point. And I think with with the show and Frankie as the creator, she um, we were talking about this um, earlier, but... She has adapted, I think, a lot of this is from her real life. Right, so I yes. wonder if there is a real alley that's out there. And I'm sure there has to be because what Frankie did before she obviously got this show and started acting and everything and making money, she would write, um, like, rich kids SAT or, you know, their college admissions and do their SATs for them and stuff. So that's right. how she made money. Yeah, so right. it, ble- yeah, it begs me to b- believe that she, or well, leads me to believe that she... Would have had some, maybe not just one alley in her life, but a, a, co- a collection of women like that who she's morphed into this one super um, beast. But yeah, it's um, you. I love watching Connie Britton on on screen, and and I think it's it's the it's a unique part of the show, um, and a unique character. But yeah, it's um, I, I wonder who she's really basing it on. <laughs> well, that's the
3: interesting thing to mm, me about and this how much show. is real, and yeah. Yeah, it, it, how much is, is based on Frankie's real life? Mm. And you were telling me about yes. the Samara Weaving character, yes. who that's based on, and mm. I mean, it's that, so that's in, common knowledge, yeah, right?
2: Yeah, so Frankie, um, so obviously she's playing a single mum and there's uh, the dad in the show and then the dad has an Australian girlfriend. Um, but in real life, Frankie's real life, um, she's got a, a little boy and the father of that little boy is Mark Weber, who is an American actor, and he his real life wife is Teresa Palmer. Mama, who's Australian. So, yeah, I think it's hard to tell, like, how much is based on, but that's that mirrors her real life. Yeah, yeah.
3: So, so I found that really interesting. And obviously with, with the Samara mm. Weaving character yes. um, and also Samara herself as an actress, that's been the other thing around Smilf that mm. has got a lot of attention was the scandal yes. that erupted at the end of last year and I kind of feel like oh and I should probably say what that is obviously yes. Samara mm. Weaving is leaving the show because or has left the show mm. she's, she's in up season on, two she's in season two yep. and she's finished up filming season two and then, then left because she didn't she wasn't happy about the way a sex scene was handled or
2: nudity she had a no nudity clause and right. um, Frankie was well I guess alleged I don't know if it's been confirmed but she was trying to coax um, Samara into doing nudity or being nude on screen.
3: And so that kind of blew up and then Mm. there was a whole other scandal involving the writers' room on Smilf and I was, I'm kind of fascinated by all of that. And I know. like, is the show ever going to come back? And mm-hmm. it's back, but all, the stuff happening off screen is kind of a bit more interesting than what is happening on screen, <laughs> right?
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. And a yeah. show that sort of is steeped in progressive politics mm-hmm. and the actors being so prominent in progressive politics mm-hmm. has now been very stained by these allegations mm-hmm. about some very unprogressive things allegedly happening on mm-hmm. set. So yes, people are openly asking, is this show going to come back? Is is the brand now so tainted? Mm-hmm. Will people People watch this now, be thinking about what's going on off screen rather than what's actually on screen. Mm.
2: I am. I was definitely thinking about it the whole time. Mm.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, I don't think it's really aimed directly at me or perhaps even you, Gavin, mm. I, but it, I found it enjoyable enough. I'm not going to go back for more, and mm. I've got to say, yes, the scandal did taint my experience of mm. watching it. Okay, and Smilf season two is available on stand with new episodes dropping each week, so do check it out. This is the one and only Bench List. Well, Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek franchise is still going very strong all these decades after the Enterprise first began its five-year mission back in 1966. Netflix is screening season two of Star Trek Discovery in Australia. The first episode is now available. Dealing with the crew of the Starship Discovery ten years before the events of the original series, season one established a lot of really tangled plots, mostly centred on the character of Michael Burnham, a human who we learn was raised on Vulcan by the parents of the legendary Mr Spock. After a lot of teasing of that relationship, the pair are now being set up to meet on screen as the Enterprise finally turns up in episode one. We've also got a lot of completely new plot threads, including some strange galactic phenomena and the appearance of a mysterious angelic I quite enjoyed the first couple of episodes after things got very tangled in Season 1, with a lot of silly and confusing plots about parallel universes, as well as a lot of war and galactic politics. season looks like it might be getting back to the original Star Trek concept of exploring strange new worlds, which is a big relief. Now, neither of you guys have a big history with Star Trek. What did you think? Gavin, you first.
3: Yeah, that's kind of an understatement. I have never watched an episode of any of the Star Treks, and let's face it, there's been a lot of them, uh, never watched a single episode of any one of them, uh, and I've, I've always thought as the years have gone on that the franchise has just become more and more impenetrable, and it's like, well, why would I start now? Because what there must be hundreds and hundreds of episodes. It
2: becomes intimidating.
3: It, it does become intimidating, but I did watch episode one of season two of Star Trek Discovery. That's mm. my first, uh, mm. my, my maiden voyage, so to speak. Oh, well done. And um, yeah, I, th- I thought it was really good. Uh, the production values are great. The uh, the characters are all really interesting and diverse, and that was really good. Um, the thing I'm fascinated by, though, is this Spock retcon, yeah. where they've basically created this whole new backstory for Spock that didn't exist, as far as I understand, didn't exist in any previous uh, show or movie yeah. that, that Spock has. You know, giving him this foster sister or half sister or whatever. No, she's not a half sister. Foster sister, semi adopted
1: sister. Thank or foster you. Sister, <laughs> Thank you yeah. for clarifying.
3: Um, yeah, give, giving him this character who is never mentioned on any of the previous shows or films, and mm. it reminded me a lot. And now you've got to stick with me on this. And re- reminded me of Days of Our Lives, <laughs> which I do, which I do watch. As, you know, that might be a, a, a bit of an admission there, but uh, they constantly rewrite characters' backstories on that show. All the daytime soaps do it. They're like, right, we need a long-lost relative. Let's, yeah. let's create this cousin mm. and, uh, you know, write them in and, and we'll, you know, we'll fiddle around with the past, all the <laughs> stuff you've seen on screen to make yeah. it make sense. Or they kill people off and then they bring, like, at the moment, Jack Devereaux has just been uh, brought back on air for, like, the fourth time. And so they're having to rewrite what actually happened to him all those years that he was gone. And it reminded me of that a little bit with Spock, where they're yeah creating something that has never been referenced and, and never been talked about and it's, like, the kind of thing you would mention if surely. you had a sister, right?
2: Yeah, surely people on online are talking about this. Surely they're losing their minds. Like, you can't let that slip past a Star Trek fan. Like, they're going to notice. Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, the thing with Star Trek being sci-fi is that there are alternate dimensions mm. and alternate timelines and mm. all that kind of stuff. So you do get away with a lot more in sci-fi than you do in, in like, daytime. So, so let's face it, days did it's have a demonic similar. possession. Oh, yeah. um, so, so yeah, maybe there there's an explanation why... It was never mentioned because it's an alternate timeline or something, and maybe that you know that's going to be explained. I don't know. I'm I'm not the Star Trek expert, but I do love all that stuff because, you know, I'm always someone who's looking out for inconsistencies in plots and, hey, that doesn't tally with what happened five seasons ago. So I'm interested how this is going to play out and if the fans are going to be completely satisfied. Matt, Mm -hmm. do you think, you know, what's your understanding of this Spock?
1: Look, I think that people are going to be accommodating because there's such a love for the Spock character. Now, this plays into one of my concerns with the show, which is, you know, this deals with a limitless universe with many, many parallel universes countless billion alien planets so much to explore, explore, explore there's so much potential for new but we're still wedded to the original series still obsessing over Spock Mm. still fixated on this it doesn't say great things about the writers that they can't come up with characters that are as beloved as Spock or are as interesting as the original concepts from the original series. Yeah, I enjoy a bit of Spock. I, I occasionally flick <laughs> on the original Star Trek and, you know, the writing's great and the characters are great. You know, that show has survived despite dreadful special effects, despite a rock-bottom budget. It's survived all this time because the writing and the characterizations were so good. Mm. Now, this new show has brilliant special effects, um, amazing cinematic quality, good performances, mm, yep. but they need to up the ante with the characters, wouldn't you say, Ali?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think, as you said, it's probably the one thing that's missing. But, um, yeah, I agree. I think it's beautifully made. It looked like a movie. Um, so, you can't fault that. And, yeah, I was, again, like I'm exactly like you, Gavin. I'd never seen a single episode in my life. I've just probably caught a scene here or there flicking, channel, like flicking. Um, so, I didn't know... What to expect? I was pretty in the dark, but I could get into it. I could really get into that show. So, maybe, maybe it's my new thing.
3: Maybe, maybe <laughs> the, the thing that the other thing that interested me is that it's a prequel leading up to the original series. Yeah. So obviously there are ties that way, and we've got um, Anson Mount playing the original Captain of the Enterprise, who then Captain Kirk took over from. Correct, if, yes. I, if I'm understanding right. Sorry. Uh, I think it was Chris Hemsworth played him in the movie. Yes, uh, Captain uh, Pike. Yeah, Captain, yeah, Captain Pike. Pike. Yeah. Um, so obviously, yeah, we're, we're you know set ten years earlier, and we're getting towards that original series. And prequels can be tricky mm. because everyone knows where you're going to end up. Yeah, because you're a prequel. Um, and so the interesting thing is whether they can do something that you're not expecting in the lead-up to the show you already know. Yeah. Does that even make sense? Yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Look, and I, I was really pleased with this return. I was uh, getting a bit alienated by season one by the end because it became too tangled up in Confusing. wars, parallel universes, convoluted stories, but they're already showing that the season is simplifying things. They've got some great original stories in the first and second episode about you know strange new worlds and cultures that they're encountering. I'm really interested in this angelic alien that they've encountered really Fascinating stuff, some good writing. Let's hope that this season finds its own path and doesn't become too wedded in the past. So, if you are interested in Star Trek Discovery, it's now screening on Netflix. Check it out. Binge List. The third and final season of Benjamin Law's largely autobiographical comedy series, The Family Law, is wrapping up on SBS on January 26th, with the series also available on SBS On Demand. This has been a groundbreaking show for Aussie TV, not only depicting a Chinese Australian family, but as it wraps up, it's finally getting to where we all knew this was headed. Benjamin's coming out. Gavin, you spoke to Ben. What did he have to say? I did, and he was a really great chat, really good
3: interview. Uh, we talked about the, they had a three-season plan for this show from, from the very start, which I didn't realise. Uh, so we talked about that and whether he would consider, despite that plan, <laughs> doing, doing a fourth season. So, yeah, let's have a listen to the interview. Hi, Benjamin. Thanks for joining us on Binge List. Having me. Now, have you been pleased with the response that season three has had so far?
0: It's actually kind of great to see people responding to it so beautifully because, um, you know, season three is a coming out story. I guess it's no huge spoiler to say Ben comes out in the final episode, but I guess the whole journey is how how he actually does that and to see people, so many people relating to that story or for that story to resonate with them as queer people or as parents. um, It's a beautiful thing.
3: So this season dropped all at once on SBS On Demand and some people have been watching it that way. It's also been airing weekly on SBS as double episodes. You know all this, obviously. But the final two episodes air this Saturday night and Ben does come out. How will it feel when it's all done?
0: Um... This sounds revolting, but deep, smug, punch-in-the-face satisfaction uh, because the master plan for the family law was to always have three seasons. Um, We knew what those seasons would be in terms of story right from day one. And it's really hard to to get a show up for three seasons like that in Australia. And and we've actually pulled it off um, and ended it the way that we wanted to. Like when you watch last episode of season 3 there are all these callbacks to the very first episode ever I and mean, we did that for, the, for a reason we're like yeah this is this is the show that we wanted to make um, so a lot of people are like is it bittersweet that it's your final episode and for me it's like no we totally we totally got the job done and I'm so proud of the cast, the crew, our producers our director um, and my co-writer for, for getting it this far but I will be stoked, relieved and probably having a very long nap afterwards.
3: So was there any temptation to go to a fourth, even though you had that three-season plan? I mean, Joss Whedon had a plan for five seasons of Buffy and then we got two more anyway, right?
0: To be completely honest, not really, because the last thing that I wanted to is have, like, Family Law season 16 following me to the grocery store in my 30s, you know what I mean? Like, I think that's the point where you're like, actually, I'm not really sure this is the story we want to tell anymore the stories we wanted to tell were about, you know, growing pains and all that sort of stuff. And then by the time he reaches season three, has sorted some fundamental shit out. And um, whether that's to do with his family or himself. And um, yeah, I think, I think season four would just be like a weird, you know, Harry Potter epilogue that no one necessarily is asking for.
3: What was it like when you saw the scenes of Benjamin coming out to his family? Did it take you right back?
0: Yeah, it's so beautiful. Like I, I, write so many of these scenes that are inspired by real life or sometimes exactly what happened in real life. So, so much of the dialogue of my coming out scene is you know, very, very close to what actually happened. Just as so much of the dialogue that happened um, in the very first episode when Jenny threw Danny out when they started separating is very, very close to what happened in real life. And often the actors nail it so precisely that I'm like, wow, these emotions, these feelings that I thought I'd completely dealt with in the past as a teenager are really rushing back. And so I think it's kind of impossible for me, and I imagine a lot of other people, um, and I know a lot of other people who've been writing to me about it, to, it's kind of impossible to watch that scene and, and not cry when Ben is so vulnerable and so on his own, which is, you know, the coming out process of so many people. Like, it's essentially you and your parents or your family or your friends having to having to navigate this completely by yourself. And that's, that's a terrifying thing, especially for a young person. So I you know, my heart rushed out to this little version of Ben from like, Oh wait, that's my story. Um, so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a um, you know, I'm not sure I can swear, but it's a bit of a it's a bit of a head
3: fuck. Yeah right I can imagine So which minority have you been most pleased to be able to represent on TV? Gay Australians, Asian Australians or people from the Sunshine Coast?
0: (laughs) That is a very funny question Um, Oh yeah people from the Sunshine Coast have been so marginalised by (laughs) the Australian community Um, Well I think what what we've really loved showing is that you can't really necessarily disentangle a, a lot of things You know uh, queer Australians, if they're Anglo, they have a race as well. They're just not often seen as such. Um, and with this character and, um, you know, this story, it is Asian-Australian and it's also queer Australian because those things overlap and can't be divorced from each other. Um, you know, we never really set out to write, like, an ethnic comedy. You're kind of, if you watch The Family Law, seasons one and two... I think you very soon realise that the plot isn't their ethnicity or their race. Um, it's definitely, like, one part of things, one part of the equation that you can't divorce from anything else. But we kind of see ourselves as a show about race as much as Friends was a show about being white, you know? Like, it's, yeah, it is a show about... It's a show that has a lot of white people in it, but it's not necessarily the plot. But we did want to change that up with sexuality. Like, we did really want to make sure the third season was about queer team issues because, you know, right now, um, after same-sex marriage vote and, yes, same-sex marriage is legal now, that's great and we can pat ourselves on the back with, with having achieved that, but I think the next real huge fight with LGBTIQ rights um, are young people and protecting them and already, you know, that's not even just a suspicion. We see that even the Prime Minister will come out and say that, you know, uh, support services for teachers that help them identify and support transgender students, like you call them gender whisperers. That's a pretty huge call um, to say something like that. So we think that the timing is right. So I've been pretty stoked that we've gotten to showcase that particular minority story.
3: So throughout the process of turning your book about your life into a TV show, was it easy to let go of your notions of what actually happened when sometimes it didn't happen exactly that way?
0: Totally. Like, you know, we can't make a documentary. I mean, we've already, we've already um, you know, signaled to the audience, look, this is set in present day, so obviously it can't be like blow by blow what happened in my life. It's kind of inspired by my life. I just happen to have all my family members' <laughs> real names. Um, but we really wanted to get to the emotional truth of things that happened. So that, sometimes that's drawing on my experience, but, you know, I'm not a parent. Parents in the writer's room would draw on their perspectives as the parents to help flesh. Jenny's perspective out and um, sometimes of course we're like fictionalising stuff completely because even though that's not the truth of what actually happened in real life, we're talking about the emotional truth of what it's like to be a parent of a gay kid or to be a gay kid navigating navigating the world and all that sort of stuff so um, yeah, we're not you know, we're, we're not doing a reality TV series um, we want to make a comedy that works so a lot of, a lot of Investments made into like making these stories things.
3: I think if it was me, I'd get so caught up on, oh, that's not what I said, that's not what I was wearing.
0: Totally. And I think sometimes my family members are like, wait, that didn't happen. And sometimes that's like, wait, like, um, you know, suspicious. But then other times it's like, oh, phew, it's relief. Oh, yeah, that didn't happen. And that's great. <laughs>
3: Right, so that was our chat with Benjamin. And yeah, it, it, some, some great things to say about the show and also about the way family law has you know, shown parts of Australian society that haven't been seen on air before. And I, I think that was probably one of the best things about that show. Would you agree, Matt, showing... Asian Australians, gay
1: Australians Yeah, yeah, it was great that a show about Asian Australians was um, written by an Asian Australian guy totally. I thought it was fantastic, <laughs> you know other it's the end of other people telling other people's stories you know, I think it was it was really enjoyable I had a great time watching the last few episodes of this season, I thought it was really sweet I thought it was moving, I thought it was funny I thought it hit all the marks, it sort of made me sad that it's coming to an end but I do agree with him that yes, this sort of does have a natural conclusion and the story was really about heading towards um his coming out which we do see in the final episode and the build-up to that I thought that some of the stuff dealing with awkward schoolyard sexuality was really hilarious you know the the unwanted schoolyard erections and so on and so (laughs) forth all those blights of teenage boyhood what did you make of it Ali?
2: Yeah I haven't watched this show um as religiously as others but um what I have seen I've enjoyed and I love Benjamin Law I've interviewed him as well and he's so great um so it was great he was given the platform um to create this and obviously with a family like that um there's so much in there there's so i mean the stories that he was telling me and obviously that have been played out on the show It's his mum it's so funny um, so I just hope he does more I mean not necessarily of the family law but of something like did he did he mention any of that of what he's got up his sleeve
3: he did and it, yeah it isn't in the bits of the interview that we played but mm. yes his next project is uh, writing something for theatre uh, I mean he he's done all sorts of things on TV behind the scenes yeah. you know writing for TV creating this one obviously mm. his, his book mm. as well uh, so yeah his next project is, is channeling that into theatre yeah great stuff and The
1: Family Law is available on SBS On Demand. It's TV news time and there's a lot happening this week. RuPaul's Drag Race continues the mainstream cultural onslaught it's been delivering since moving to VH1 in the US and Stan in Australia. We've got the cast of Season 11 about to be announced and this week the fourth All-Star season broke from its regular formula to bring back all four eliminated queens, dedicating an entire episode to a series of lip-sync challenges. We were told the twist would be uh, bringing back one ejected star into the fold and one person was going to be leaving as a result. But it didn't quite happen that way. Spoiler alert, fan favourite Latrice Royale got back in, but Monique Hart, who she was facing off with, was spared elimination. Supposedly, it was a draw. A lot of people are saying while it was an entertaining episode, it did stink of being a blatant stunt to get Latrice back in the game. What are your thoughts, Ali?
2: Well, I loved this episode. I loved just the fact that they changed the format, that they brought them back. I loved the drama. I loved the cliffhanger of when they were just standing behind um, the, the, the six left or whatever and they were all dressed up, you know, very dramatic. Um, and then it led into the next episode and they were back and they were fighting for their life um, or da- lip syncing for their life. Um, so whether it was to get Latrice back on the show – Uh, whether or not whatever I don't care I loved the drama of it um but what I will say is I don't see the big deal I don't understand why Latrice is so beloved I don't get it I don't see her
1: character she's such a sweetheart and her (laughs) performances can be really fun and funny like her Mm. her flag flag dancing is just notoriously good (laughs) really really fun what did you think Gavin
3: Um, it was was a good episode. uh, My favourite bit of Drag Race is the lip sync for your life Mm. part of the show. You know, some of the comedy (laughs) skits they do and things like that, I'm I'm not really that interested Mm. in. Uh, And I'm I'm not a regular viewer. I kind of basically whenever I'm walking through the lounge room and if it happens to be on, I might watch it for 10 minutes or something. Um, But yeah, this this was a, a very dramatic episode. It did seem to take a long time to get to the lip sync for your life section. There was a lot of... Chatting, I think it was like 26 minutes I was watching it. They still haven't got to the, you know, lipstick we Alive. There's so hot, much. That's part of it. I know, and I, I know that that's all part of it. The drama, the shade, the, mm. the, what is it, pouring tea, drinking tea, spilling tea, Spilling, spilling, tea. spilling the tea. Wow, how, how out of touch am I? <laughs> um, all of that is part of it, but uh, yeah. I will say this, I'm not a fan of reality shows bringing back eliminated contestants. Mm. Call it the Survivor fan in me. Um, they, they did it once on Survivor in Pearl Islands and, and everyone hates the fact that they brought the scout leader Lil back uh, and she ended up in in the final two. Mm. And then they did it again with their Redemption Island uh Gimmick, I, I think once you're out, you're out. So
2: this triggered you a bit, and yeah. I just
3: kind of yeah. I think once you're out, you're out, and I can understand all the all the queens who were still there going, "Hang on, we got rid of you, and now yeah. we're back to ten again." Yeah. Uh, and you know, I mean, they, I'm sure they're all happy that. uh you know, they all got to stay yeah, anyway. No yeah. one actually went home, yeah. which is a little bit of an anticlimax, mm-hmm. I have to say. But yeah, I, I kind of think once you're you know, the only reality show that does bringing back people well, I think, is Top Chef. Mm-hmm. They have a separate show called Last Chance Kitchen, oh, where yeah. once you're kicked off, you go into this other competition, mm-hmm. which is a web competition, mm-hmm. and you keep competing and cooking. Yep. And then when it gets to the final four or something, they bring the winner of that. Mm-hmm. Back into the final four, and I kind of feel like, well, you've you've earned you've earned your spot then because you've survived mm. twelve weeks mm. of extra eliminations mm. in that to come back in. Yeah.
2: On the point of bringing people back on reality shows, I love it when Love Island does that. Although the Australian version <laughs> didn't really do it their first season last year. In the UK version, they have because obviously there's people who can be causing a lot of trouble in the house and they get kicked off. But right. that's, they they would they brought the drama. They brought the like. Yeah, they, they had so much to give and then they got kicked off because nobody liked them. But we, as viewers, we want people like that in the, anyway. So when they do it, I love it.
3: Yeah, I guess yeah. that's the distinction between competition shows yes. where you've got a skill or a talent yes. and dating Versus. shows where often you have no skill or talent but you're pretty.
2: Yeah, yeah. or you're, yeah. you know, rude to people or, yeah. you know, cause fights. Bring it on. I love that. Bring them back. (laughs)
1: Yeah, Look, I am one of those people who thinks that this episode was a huge contrivance to get Latrice back in, Mm. but I don't mind because I love her and I love the way this show is produced. I think it's just getting more and more meta, the way that people are referencing the manipulative nature of reality shows in Drag Race. Mm. People are now constantly openly talking about their edits. They're talking about their narratives. It's just really fun. And it's a way of uh, sort of winking to the audience and saying, we know you're not stupid. You're along for the ride. We're going to give you a bloody good ride and that's certainly what they're doing. I think Mm. that this season is fantastic and I hope it keeps being fantastic." Okay, and on something just as camp. Super producer Ryan Murphy's quest for TV domination continues, with details confirmed this week about his forthcoming project for Netflix, a prequel to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest called Ratched. This one deals with the story of that villainous nurse from the classic film and will star Sarah Paulson as well as a whole bunch of Murphy-esque divas like Sharon Stone, Cynthia Nixon and Judy Davis. You either love or hate Ryan's work and you often need to have a tolerance for very, high camp. What do you think of Ryan's looming Netflix takeover, Gavin? <laughs> it
3: is looming and, and he's getting paid something ridiculous like between 250 and $300 million for this wow. for this deal with Netflix. And they're also bringing over Shonda Rhimes mm-hmm. as well. It's like Nef- and Netflix's part, it's a genius move. It's like let's snap up all these huge producers. Prolific,
2: like, yeah, bang all, out the hits. <laughs> and they do,
3: don't yep. they, both Shonda yeah. and Ryan, bring them into the Netflix fold mm. and will further just chip away at network TV's market share. Mm. Um, yeah, so genius new move for Netflix. Ryan's uh, going back and doing a prequel of One Flew Over the Cuckoo Nest. That, that's interesting. It's very Ryan Murphy, let's face it. it yeah. it's, you know, I can just see that being... Could, could almost be a, a season of American Horror Story. Yeah. American Horror Story, Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, I'm
2: scared. <laughs> I'm definitely scared.
3: <laughs> and uh, Because, you know, he, he went into a psych ward in one of the American Horror Stories, mm. I think. Asylum, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So it seems very similar territory to that. Um, and Sarah Paulson, he loves a bit of Sarah Paulson, doesn't he? And, and yeah. you know, I, I quite like Sarah Paulson as well. She's, she's really quite good. So mm. her in that role is, is probably quite a good fit. Mm. But, um, I don't know, another prequel, here we are again in, in prequel work. World <laughs> where we know where she ends up, and this is apparently going to follow the journey of um, Nurse Ratchet in the healthcare profession, mm. <laughs> and maybe she's going to start out all nice and and wholesome, yeah. and then gradually become the uh, manipulative bully that that uh, people know from one floor over, the mm. Cooker's Nest. Yeah. I like some of Ryan Murphy's stuff but some of it I find a bit same same. Are you are you a
2: fan? I yeah, I'm a fan. I um, I mean I haven't seen everything he's done. I I, I mean horror stories way too scary. Like I could <laughs> not even Entertain the idea of that, but um, I loved the first few seasons of Glee. I did drop off towards the end because it kind of went a bit too went a bit too far with it. Um, I've loved the People Versus the the, his anthology of those kinds of the real what is it it, one of the I
3: loved American American crime story. That's it. Yeah, I loved the OJ one. I didn't love the Gianni one.
2: Gianni, yeah, I I tried and I watched a bit of it. Didn't finish it, Um, but. Yeah, I think I think he's great, and I think he does great stuff. Um, but this one might be a bit too scary for me.
3: <laughs> How does? He, when does he sleep? He makes so many TV shows. I know, yeah. like surely
2: he's got. He would have a massive staff behind him, obviously. So of course,
3: of um, course.
2: But yeah, I mean, got, like, the the awards um, awards season. Obviously, he's just showered in awards glory every year. So um, Netflix have made a very wise move. <laughs>
1: they have. have you, you like a bit of Ryan <laughs> yeah. Murphy I do, I do. I really enjoyed Feud. That was a oh, great that's, show. Yes. Yeah. I yeah, about that one?
2: That was um, A few too many episodes,
1: but yeah. it was fun. I kind of mm. felt like it dragged a bit. Yeah, mm. yeah. American Horror Story, very up and down. I still haven't seen Apocalypse yet. I don't know if I want to because it had such a mixed reception. Mm. But, yes, I'll always try something of his, and especially on Netflix.
2: I also loved Pose. Forgot that one too. Yes. Loved Pose. Yes. Yep.
1: Yep, yeah, definitely. Okay, now we dealt with the keto diet in episode six of Binge List last year, where we talked about Pete Evans' Netflix special, The Magic Pill. But this week, TV's gone into a meltdown over the controversial diet, with Biggest Loser icon Gillian Michaels in a really vicious war of words with keto fans like Andy Cohen and Al Roker. Over on Netflix, there's plenty more pro-keto arguments on display in the second season of Pete Evans' The Paleo Way. He isn't backing away from the joys of meat and animal fat on that show, even breaking the long-time TV taboo by showing in detail how a chicken gets slaughtered and then bled out. It seems like diets are really almost like the new religions. People are dividing up and getting tribal over this stuff, and it's getting very personal and nasty. What do you make of it all, Ally?
2: I mean everyone needs to calm down
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> It's way way they've lost the plot really. Um, I just think let people do whatever they want like if you want to eat note low carbs and whatever else you're doing on keto, go for it but you don't need to like calm down you just don't everyone can calm down. that's all I think.
3: What do you I, think? Yeah, I, I was amazed reading the the tweets and and stuff online for Al Roker. Yeah, yes, un,
2: unexpected. <laughs> unexpected
3: that he got so uh, into it. Mm. But yeah, it's like calm down. It's just a diet. Either yeah. do it or don't do it. Yeah. And you know, as you say, let yeah. let other people do it or don't do it there's, as they see fit.
2: There's nothing worse than a really passionate whatever you might be vegan, like, um, paleo, yeah. like whatever. It's just like that, try to just tries to force it down your throat. No pun intended. But you know just, it puts you off all of it, like... Anyway, yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, and, and I subscribe by the, you know, le- less is more yeah. kind of thing. Yeah,
2: or, all, in, know, all, all in I moderation. Phrase, yes, or, that's, yeah, I think
3: that's what I mean. Yeah. Where, yeah, don't overindulge in anything yeah. and then you'll probably be okay.
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: But yes, Matt, what do you think? <laughs> Look, I think it's all fun and games. It's interesting that Gillian does have a book out right now, dot, dot, oh. dot. So, she's hitching her wagon to this. But I'm not going to slag Gillian off because mm. she's one of my most favourite celebrity interviews I ever ever had in mm. my life when I interviewed her when she came down to do Biggest Loser, she was just completely uncensored. She was even gratuitously slagging off elements of her own show. She, she didn't care less, and I love that. In this world of sort of self-censorship and bullshit, she was mm. fantastic. Um, as far as keto, I did watch uh, The Paleo Way, which has got a lot of keto elements in it. I watched the second season from beginning to end, and I was very wow. surprised to see that uh, chicken slaughtering scene, which I thought was really brave because mm. we live in such a sanitised world. Um, some people might be frightened of that but they were sort of saying you know this is the reality of of how food is produced and you know in their defense I don't want to upset any vegans listening but Mm. the the way that this was depicted the chicken didn't appear to suffer at all it was um, stunned it was put in sort of a cone thing and then it was bled out Mm. Um, possibly a much nicer death than uh, the the ways that most chickens might die of disease or predation Um, but you know it's a very controversial. I can see why people get upset about it. Mm. I, I can see Ellie going, "Oh my gosh, I don't want to watch that ever." Yeah, I'm just yeah. thinking,
2: like this. I, there are shows out there that show like the production of, or um, meet the cows and how they're slaughtered, and yeah. all those documentaries about. Um, lots of people watch them, and then they become the vegan or vegetarian.
1: Yeah, I can understand. And that.
2: I can't. I mean. I probably would be a better person from watching those things, but I just can't bring myself to do it.
1: This week's hidden gem is the other two. In this new comedy series, siblings Carrie and Brooke have never been able to make it in the entertainment industry. Carrie, played by Drew Tarver, goes for crappy acting auditions, while Brooke, the good fight's Helene York, is a failed dancer. Then the teenage brother comes along and becomes an overnight sensation in Rebecca Black style, singing thanks to a viral music video. Laughs ensue, don't they, Gavin?
3: They do. They do. This was really uh, took me by surprise. This one, it was really quite funny, especially. By the time you get to the second episode, the first episode which sets up this story where you've got, yeah, Carrie who who goes along to this acting audition where he's got to play Guy Who Smells Fart at Party. <laughs> so he actually has to do literally smell the fart acting. <laughs> um, oh, that's so, good. so So that's Carrie, the brother. And then, uh, and then there's Brooke who is uh, sleeping where she works mm-hmm. uh, because, yeah, basically her career is going nowhere either. And then their brother... Releases this ridiculous music video called "Oh, I can't remember what the song's called." Well, but his it, name is his name yeah, is, is Chase Dreams. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because what do you? Because that's what you should do. You yeah. should chase dreams. That's what he says. And. Uh, and, and he's become this overnight sensation, and he's not a brat. He's actually a really, really lovely kid. Mm. He's a bit dim, mm. but uh, he's a really nice kid. So this isn't about the older siblings hating their brother or anything like that. They're kind of just a bit shocked, like, oh, my gosh, how is this happening? How does he have millions of Instagram followers? How is he getting paid all this money mm. to turn up to a red carpet, things like that? And uh, the, one of the best things about this show is that Molly Shannon oh. is the mother of these three siblings. Mm. Yeah. So she becomes this mummager and uh, she's <laughs> completely over the top as, as Molly Shannon always is mm. and, and she's quite great in it. But there's a lot of those kind of classic comedy actors in this show. You've got Ken Marino mm-hmm. who is a Scooter brawn type manager of... Of, of Chase as well. So he's kind of got the mum thing going on and he's got this other guy who is modelled clearly on Scooter Braun who's the manager of, of Ariana Grande Justin and, and Justin Bieber. Yeah. And, and obviously... Chase is kind of like a Justin Bieber type figure because he was, you know, went viral online as well. And uh, oh, and Richard Kind is in it as well, who you would know from Mad About You and Spin City. If if you don't know him by name, as soon as you see him, you're like, oh, it's that guy. So there's these classic comedy actors in this, and it really basically takes the piss out of the entertainment industry and what it means to be famous today and, and celebrity and how it's also superficial and you can become famous overnight for essentially nothing whereas people who have been chipping away like the the older siblings carrie and brooke have are, are getting nowhere uh, and it, it really just yeah, it satirizes that uh, world and in the second episode they go to this uh Premiere of a kids' movie that Chase has been invited to, and he goes onto the red carpet, and and his siblings are trying to you know break into the break into the after party and things like that, and it's really quite funny. So to answer your your question at the start, but yes, laughs do ensue, kind of sniggers in episode one, but by episode two they're really quite good, you know. Mm. Sounds really funny, yeah. Sign me up. Oh, and it's the other thing is it's it's written and created by two of the writers from Saturday Night Live as well, so it's got that kind of
1: pedigree to it as well.
3: Mm. So, yeah, I would recommend the other two.
1: Wow, yeah, I want to watch that. Sounds really good. Okay, you can check out the other two on the Comedy Channel. Thanks for joining us this week on Binge List. Do make sure you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and you can hear us via all good podcast apps. Join us next week when we're talking about The Cry, Russian Doll, and I Am the Night. And you'll be hearing from Claire with a very special celebrity interview. Do feel free to contact us about the show via social media. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Matt Denby. Gavin's there also on GavinScott99, and you can reach Ali on Instagram at AliCromedy. Until next week, happy viewing.
2: Bye. Hi.
1: Hold up.